This week on the show, we have a couple of adventures in Freebernetes. We talk about tracing kernel functions using dtrace, the better way of building FreeBSD networks using DummyNet. We have also some new beginnings for the CDBug virtual meetings, a LibreSSL update and Dragonfly, Signal CLI with SCLI on FreeBSD for signal messaging and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 379, Beehive My Guest, recorded for the 25th of November 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for the truly paranoid. You can go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for exactly that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this episode of BSD Now. Hope you're all doing fine. We have some interesting headlines for you, but this is not all. We also have a great show as well. So, but we always start with the headlines. Here we have found adventures in Freebernetes. Beehive, my guest, is the namesake of this episode. And yes, it's about FreeBSD and Kubernetes, a topic that people have always talked about. And it seems like things are aligning in certain ways. So this is exactly about that. Over at production with scissors.run, because, you know, running in production with scissors is always maybe not the best idea, but uh, it's not about that. It's about um, setting up a FreeBSD with Kubernetes. And so there is a part one, which is basically about installing FreeBSD. And I guess most people have that under the cover already. So we go with part two. And that has a beginning with a Beehive background. And that's FreeBSD's type two software virtualization hypervisor. And it's pretty cool. They write, it supports a number of operating systems as guest virtual machines, including not only the BSD family, but also Linux's, Elomos, and even Windows NT. So um, the macOS's HyperKit is built on XHive, a port of FreeBSD Beehive, which doesn't surprise them, but is cool. And these are some tweets, I think. Uh, that they wrote. And you can run Docker on your Mac thanks to FreeBSD. Of course, you can run your Mac thanks to FreeBSD too. And they start with this whole thing um, called CBSD, which we also covered on this uh, show before. And this will simplify managing your Beehive VMs. Uh, but first, they want to create some manually, more or less to get a taste of what goes on under the hood. And they do that and describe how they do all these things like, you know, setting up the tap up on open, sysctl, creating the, the bridge and the tap zero, and then assigning an IP address so that this beehive can listen to that uh, address. Then they walk through the installation. This is still not very interesting to uh, the goal of this blog post. But then um, they start looking at running this um, with Linux guests, and then it gets interesting. So uh, Beehive also supports Linux as your guest VMs, as they said above. And note that the Linux VMs require the grub Beehive using the grub to Beehive port. And if you install FreeBSD on your hypervisor and have not installed any ports yet, you will probably need to wait a while or, or, or night maybe, uh, while the dependencies compile, plan accordingly. So then they have a high maintenance FreeBSD guest here. And while they wait for the grub to Beehive port and its dependencies to compile, let's see what it takes to run a FreeBSD guest without the VM run.sh helper script. And they show you how to do that. Basically what they ran into is the fact that 
uh, when legacy booting, Beehive is two separate steps. A Beehive load that loads the kernel into the memory, and then you start Beehive. If you use the UEFI mode in Beehive, it is possible to boot uh, from one single command instead. Uh, VM run can do that if you give it, I think it's the capital E flag or something like that. One of the flags that enables EFI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so they show how to do that. And yeah, so that's basically a good start running down. And so um, they have some future. Uh, so this is a series of blog posts and in some future blog posts, uh, I think this is part four or something, they have the uh, experiments running with the uh, CBSD uh, manager. It can do uh, jail management, but it can also do uh, beehives. And so that allows you to run uh, these things side by side. So you kind of have a little bit of a um, Kubernetes environment. Of course, there's more involved in Kubernetes than just running uh, VMs or hypervisor uh, parts, but they have some interesting uh, configurations and they always show what they uh, do in the command line so you can follow along and so I think this is a good introductory part into the whole uh, virtualization under FreeBSD. Yep. Uh, so next up we have a new blog post from Ryan Zizeski and Varsa uh, over in the Illumos community and he's talking about tracing kernel functions using func uh, function boundary tracing and dtrace and the stack and arg uh, actions. Uh. Uh, so he says, in my previous post, which is linked here, uh, I described how function boundary tracing intercepts function calls and vectors them into the dtrace framework. That laid out the fundamentals for what I want to discuss in this post, the implementation of the stack action and the built-in arg variables. These functions rely on the precise layout of the stack, uh, the details which I touched on in the previous post. In this post, I hope to illuminate those details a bit more with the help of some visuals and then guide you through the implementation of these two dtrace features as they relate to function boundary tracing. So first he starts with a correction to the previous article, which you know you can read if you go through the previous article as well. And there are quite a few very nice detailed diagrams of how a bunch of this works. I think he's actually, in this case, walking through a packet going through a, a network card. But the one that was, I think, most interesting to me was talking about the stack action. So this is basically a pseudo function in dtrace that prints out the list of functions uh, basically the function call tree of the probe you're currently looking at. So you can say, all right, whenever we run into this function in dtrace, tell me what path did we go through to get here? Mm. So what function called which function to, that eventually called the one that we're tracing? Uh, so the separation of probes and actions is a vital aspect of dtrace's architecture. A firm boundary between these two makes dtrace more powerful than it ever could be if it was tightly coupled. Uh, think about it. If you, uh, I can ask for the call stack in any probe, not just the probes that deem that information to be useful. The probes give you access to a context and that action gives you access to data in that context. To limit the execution of actions to specific probes would limit the questions you can ask about the system. With this design, the number of questions you can ask is virtually endless. And it turns out that many of the most useful questions to ask are, what the hell is running on my CPU? <laughs> so the stack action allows you to record the call stack that led to this probe site. Uh, in the context of a function boundary trace, this will record the call stack of the kernel thread or interrupt executing an entry or return from the kernel function that you're tracing. You can also access the userland stack of a thread 
with the uStack command, but we're not going to talk about that in this article. So the stack action is implemented in dtrace by the dtrace get pc stack. To get there from dtrace invop requires a couple of more calls to the dtrace framework. Ultimately, the call stack to get there ends up as dtrace get pc stack. Uh, I think pc stands for program counter there, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Then dtrace probe, then function boundary tracing invop, then dtrace invop, and then dtrace invop call site. The implementation of stack really starts with the dtrace act underscore stack case inside the dtrace probe function. The first argument is the address of the array used to store the program counter values, a, that's your function pointers. This array starts at some offset into the current dtrace buffer. The second argument is the size of that array. The third argument is the number of artificial frames on the stack. And we'll talk more about that later in the article. The fourth argument is used to determine if the first or topmost program counter in the call stack is the value passed in for arg0 to a dtrace probe. In the case of an anchored probe, is one that has a function name specified when calling the dtrace probe create function. For example, the fbt uh, provider name is the name of the kernel function as the probe's function name. Thus, it is anchored on that kernel function. The profile provides, however, specifies no probe function names. Uh, so if you're using the profile one that just ticks every X milliseconds, mm. then it won't have a, a probe func because it's just being like, what's happening now? What's happening now? What's happening now? <laughs> you know, 99 times a second or 999 times a second or whatever. Uh, it is not anchored and is a bit of a special case. He talks more about that later. But it gets into how all that actually works and how it's able to actually tell you what's happening inside the code. So the main loop walks the call stack and fills in program counters as long as there are slots remaining in the PC stack variable. If we were in the context of a high level interrupt and we've walked off of its stack, then hop to the thread stack. Otherwise we've walked off the thread stack, leaving just this last frame uh, to record. Yep. And it goes through a bunch of that. And then there's the built-in arg variables. So that's arg0, arg1, arg2, up to arg9. And then there's the typed counterparts. So if you've ever used dtrace, you might have been confused. Why is there arg0 and then args square bracket 0? Mm. And the difference is the arg0 to 9 are just the raw values, whereas the args array, each of those members has the type of the variable that's actually in there. So if you just access arg1 and it's a pointer, you're just going to get the address. But if you have args1, you can actually dereference it and see what that pointer points to. You know, If you know it's this struct, you can actually view it as that and it makes it much more useful. This allows each probe to supply up to 10 arguments. The arg values are, provided, are provider dependent. In the case of a function boundary tracing, uh, the kernel function arguments for each probe and the return offset uh, plus value for uh, return probes. Regardless of the provider, all arg variable usage ultimately ends up in the dtrace diff variable function. Shows you a bit of that code. I says he's not going to explain the entire thing. I put it on display only to show that these values are dependent on the provider. But in the case of function boundary tracing, there are basically two possibilities. For arg0 through arg4, we pull those from the argument cache stored in a variable. And you can see on line 32.15, the provider populates this cache via the call to dtrace probe. If there are more than those uh, first five arguments, so arg5 through 9, we must get help from the provider-specific callback get argval. Uh, when undefined, as it is for function boundary tracing, we fall back to the dtrace framework function dtrace get arg. Explaining this function makes more sense by starting at the end. And he 
walks through how you can actually get those uh, extra arguments. Mm. Yeah, what I like about this post is how he details um, the diagrams or how detailed the diagrams are, like really what which functions are called. Yeah, and they have little callout numbers that match up with the text. It makes it much easier to understand yeah. what's happening. And it's yeah, it's very detailed, and this could be this could be a book page about D-trace. But yeah, it really helps yeah. um, explaining and illustrating these these concepts and how how it all works together. So yeah, if you've ever been interested in how D-trace works, uh, this and the preceding article that actually walk into it are a good place to start. All right. Now it's time for the news roundup this week, and we've picked up another great article from clarasystems.com titled DummyNet, the better way to build FreeBSD networks or off-building FreeBSD networks. Yeah, so this is a, an article that uh, Tom Jones wrote for us that explains how to use DummyNet to emulate various things, whether that's, you know, if you want to simulate 3G connections or 4G, LTE, DSL, or a geosynchronous satellite. Um, you know, if you're building an application, uh, sometimes you need to be able to simulate, what if the network isn't as good as a LAN? Or, you know, I need this virtual machine to pretend like it's in another country and it's going to take 100 milliseconds for the packets to go from here to there. And DummyNet makes it really easy to do that. Ah, yeah, so there's explanations and uh, things you can try out on the command line to just simulate the geosatellite 10 megabits per second <laughs> downlink, if you so desire. Oh, good. Then people can follow along with this and get the background knowledge of what DummyNet is and can do. Ah, and he uses iperf to, you know, definitely demonstrate that it's really this speed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, in particular, showing how if you just do the default config and try to create a pipe that's 50 megabits, you'll notice that you only get about 35 or 40 of the megabits because if there's no queue, as soon as you go over that speed, we drop some packets mm. and that ends up giving you this very uneven speed. But if we put a little bit of Q into it, then we see that suddenly we get a much smoother speed very close to the, the target. Very nice. Oh, yeah. I see that this is uh, helpful, like in network planning or like, hey, I can dem definitely demonstrate that this network is only providing that much uh, uplink or downlink uh, that was promised to me or that was, uh, you know, are you... You definitely told me that this would do more, but it's only currently doing that, but I can simulate how it would behave like that. Yes, or yeah, with the video streaming stuff I did, it was very handy to be able to be like, what happens if the viewer has only this much bandwidth and is this far away from the mm. server? So I could configure, you know, one machine at our office to, to pretend like it's in Europe and is trying to watch and how does that impact things? Oh yeah, I could also think about scenarios where you would be like, um, if someone is scanning your, your network and you kind of uh, pretend to let that person in and you just give them a very, very slow network bandwidth in a, in a separate jail. Yes, there have been times when people were misbehaving on IRC and I would use a dummy net rule to limit their <laughs> connection to so many characters <laughs> per second so that they would get IRC, but only, you know, at a certain rate. <laughs> yeah, the, the open Wi-Fi was definitely a bad idea to connect to. <laughs> this just gives you a character per second. <laughs> okay, yeah, there is uh, things you can do that um, is amusing and um, yeah, useful as well. 
Great. So that's a good article for you to check out on clarasystems.com. Then we found some new beginnings this year. Uh, we can't uh, read enough about those. It's about the CityBug virtual meetings. And this is from Brian Callahan, who has uh, ever yet been busy. And he writes, hi, CityBug. Uh, CD stands for the, is this New York City? Um, NYC bug or what's this? Okay. Yeah. So hi. No, it's not an NYC bug. It's it's um, it's also in New York, but a different part of New York. Ah, okay. So, capital district. Ah, yes, of course. Okay, capital district bug, and they have virtual meetings. And Callahan, Brian Callahan writes, uh, I had overwhelmingly positive responses from the broader BSD community about restarting city bug meetings as virtual, at least for now. Hopefully, this works well, and even when we're back to in-person meetings, we can still find a way to bring in virtual attendees. Ah, yes, that's good. Some, sometimes people. Uh, cannot make it and just want to listen in or some <laughs> they have a traffic jam going on and just want to listen in but yeah there could be reasons um, then he continues but this is still primarily a cap disk community so i ask when would be good for us locals to hold meetings we used to do first wednesday of the month at 6 45 p.m does this still work for people would other times be preferred let me know additionally to have people from near and far who would be willing to present, so we are potentially good for content uh, for the foreseeable future. Of course, more presenters is always better. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Uh, anyhow, for the locals, let's think about time. Spread around word to other locals and other faraway people, and let's make this happen. Yeah, uh, you know, my Hamburg has basically been doing virtual meetings since March, and they've worked pretty well. You know, we've never actually got to the point of having uh, specific presentations even we've mostly just been get a bunch of people together and talk about whatever's on everybody's mind at the time and yeah we've had people from everywhere from serbia to mm. australia oh. so people staying up very late or getting up very early to attend <laughs> the meetings uh, as well as people all over the u.s that have jumped in for a bit cool yeah it's definitely good to have like talk among yourselves rather than listen to a talk um on a specific topic yeah you know in, in general the in meeting person meeting the in-person meetings were fun but there's been some advantages to the virtual ones of you know being able to have like uh olivier uh couchard mm -hmm. being able to jump in for a little bit and talk about the bsd router project uh and just what other things people were interested in wouldn't have happened if we were meeting at a yeah that restaurant. would be difficult to to get to in time but yeah, so definitely reach out to Brian Callahan if you're interested in giving a talk or joining that or if you have a recommendation for a better time. And so you can kind of see what the general population uh, in the BSD crowd uh, thinks about that. Next, we have an update in the Dragonfly about um, LibreSSL. So Dragonfly BSD Digest yeah, tells so, us. Um, Dragonfly BSD has imported a newer version of LibreSSL. The big change to importing 3.2 is the addition of TLS 1.3 support. Uh, so that allows, you know, if you're using a web server or something off of it, you can start supporting TLS 1.3, which was only available in OpenSSL, I guess, prior or 1.1 or 2. Or, I don't know. It was something that LibreSSL was behind on, but now they're caught up. Ah, okay, good. So if you have some more information about Dragonfly BSD, what they're doing around the 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 other th system i'm fairly sure they have some cool features coming up uh, but we don't hear much from them so let us know on feedback at bstnow.tv if you have anything dragonfly specific so we can put it in the show yep. uh, the libre ssl looks like it also improves the uh 
name constraint verification stuff so it passes the better tls.com test which is good mm -hmm. all right good then uh, we found an article about uh, signal cli with scli on freebsd and so this is um an ongoing effort or part of an ongoing effort from migrating uh, macOS to FreeBSD on a laptop. And so um, this is from more specifically a MacBook Pro uh, on a ThinkPad T480. So uh, from the Mac world to the <laughs> FreeBSD world, not too far away. Um, the, then they start, um, where's where a good, ah, here. Um, you want to run Signal on FreeBSD as you would probably relate to. And Signal people are not interested in supporting the BSDs, apparently. But as any sane person, um, the author here started searching the internet for possible solutions. And turns out all that he needed is two pieces of software, Signal-CLI and SCLI. And installation is easy as running package install because FreeBSD has a package and port for it. And this is uh, aptly named Signal-CLI and SCLI. And now the configuration i think is going on yeah you need you ah you need to link your phone by running signal dash cli then provide the parameter link and dash n freebsd and it will give an output that says tls device something uuid something pubkey equals something copy that output and then another terminal run qr encode so you get a qr code with exactly this uh, string the other command outputs and you um, translate that to ANSI 256 and you get represented with a QR code in the console. Cool, huh? Uh, then you can use your phone app to link to the device by scanning that QR code and then to receive the list of your contacts, run signal CLI minus U plus my phone number, uh, insert your phone number here, of course, and then receive and then you can run SCLI, which is the text user interface, and that should get you uh, connected, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, and then you should be able to send and receive signal messages from your laptop. Cool, so you can definitely use that in um, CLI anyway, where you have a bit more uh, flexibility. And yeah, should be fine to chat with uh, the folks you were chatting before, or signaling more like. <laughs> yep, thanks for that, that was a good one. All right, in the Beastie Bits this week, we have found uh, that Apparently, Firefox is not PackCTL safe for NetBSD. Yeah, so this is uh, a change in the uh, package source port that's been tested on AMD64. And it says, this means that text relocations are now fatal. Hopefully, other architectures don't have additional ways to not mProtect safe ways of doing things. They say, currently, there's no obvious performance difference in the older non-WASM JavaScript benchmarks. So they think it's okay. But basically, they've uh, had to add plugin-container binary to the list of not packs and protect safe files and add a couple of patches to change the way uh, anonymous memory is tagged on NetBSD. Ah, okay, good. Then finally, we have news from the FreeBSD Foundation's team. They've got FreeBSD 12.2 now available on the Microsoft Azure Marketplace. So if you want to run the official FreeBSD 12.2 on Azure, uh, it is now available in the Marketplace so you can just one click to launch vms in uh, amazon uh, sure <laughs> or sorry not amazon microsoft azure oh uh, yes i think Li wen was involved in that somehow yes uh he did the the work to improve the image generation for this ah good so thanks for that and they have all the different machine types available so whether you want standard or memory optimized or general purpose or compute optimized or basic 
Uh, and, you know, they have a, a range of costs from, you know, six tenths of a cent up to, you know, $112 an hour. Oh, yeah. There should be something for everyone in there. Oh, yeah. This can go quite high. But yes, uh, <laughs> you know, having 416 cores sounds like that would be fun. <laughs> Just until you get the bill. But for something to compute and then shut it down quickly, that's perfectly a fine use case for that. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, you can get to smaller instances as well, like the B1LS, uh, which is one core, half a gig of memory, four gigs of disk, that's SSD, uh, and it's 0 0.6 cents per hour. Ah, yes, that's that's uh, a good price to, to do a bit of computing there. So yeah, thanks for providing these images and... Hopefully, if you have some interesting use cases for that, or maybe have a blog post about that, then send it to us for feedback at BSD Now TV, because we're always looking for interesting stories in BSD use cases. This week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by our friends at Tarsnap, the online secure online backup you can trust your data to. Because even the paranoids need backups, and it's true. Because you should back up. That's that's basically a given, no, no question there but you should do it properly. First, by making sure that the encryption key is never leaving your computer and it's not generated on some obscure API that you don't know and trust. So everything is happening locally before any data leaves your disk or your computer, then um, Tarsnap takes care of it by making sure that it's deduplicated because why copy this one PDF that you have in like six folders um, five times. No, you only need it this one time and uh, Tarsnap takes care about that as well. And then a little bit of compression happening, sometimes depends on the input, uh, what kind of files you have, but the compression, you know, really can make a difference there and size down the amount of files you would copy. And then after that is all done, the encoded bits or the blocks that are still left are then stored in, in this case, the Amazon cloud and they stay there encrypted until the day you need it. Hopefully that day will be very far ahead. And then you can pull it down if you still have your Tarsnap key. If you don't, then not even the Tarsnap people can help you. And it's very cheap because you can uh, like put in like a $10 in your Tarsnap account and this will get you a very long time, depends on how much data you are storing. But the typical um, backup of mine is just a few micro pico dollars it's very very cheap and so they only charge you for um, the actual data that is unique that you are backing up and not like oh here's your uh big bill every every month or so and so you can save a lot of data and uh, money in the same and there's plenty of clients available for all the unix systems out there and windows so there is really no excuse anymore to not use tarsnap or not make backups because you would Definitely rude day where you didn't use that and listen, didn't listen to us and you need your backups and then you don't have them. So check out tarsnap.com slash BSD now and find everything. You can even look up in the um, in the source codes. They provide that as well in case you really don't trust them. But I think this is a good way to back up your data and find the right amount of uh, security and paranoia in the same. All right, it's feedback and questions time in this week's episode. We have received questions, but we could use a little bit more. 
and we are planning a special episode around December, maybe Christmas, where you can interview us. So normally we interview other people, but this is your chance to interview us. So send us a question to feedback at bsdnado.tv that you always wanted to ask Alan, myself, our director. So this is about the whole show. Could be anything like what kind of keyboard are you using or what kind of mouse are you using? <laughs> we don't care. We just want to uh, give you a chance to know a little bit more about us. So um, this should go to feedback at bsdnado.tv just like your other questions. The first one is Carlos this week about BSD Now around the world. Oh, I like the sound of that. Carlos writes, hello, how is it going? Uh, hope all is well. It is. Uh, I have some cool information that might interest you. Okay, let's hear it. Your podcast, BSD Now, has good performance in some rankings the last 30 days here. Uh, position two in the category tech news in Ireland. Oh, wow. Position three in the category tech news in Ghana. Also good. Position three in the category tech news in Latvia. Ah, nice. I've been there. It's a nice country. Uh, position three in the category tech news in Korea or the Republic of Korea, more precisely. And position four in the category tech news in Croatia. Oh, wow. This is great news. This data is provided by podstatus.com. Happy podcasting. Thank you, Carlos. This is this is really uh, something that I haven't uh, knew before. Did you know about this, Alan? Mm-hmm. Not really. But, uh, you know, if listeners want to get their country on that list, get a bunch of your friends and listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice <laughs> plug there. But, uh, yeah, so there's room to grow because there's always position one we could you know, get into. But it's kind of nice to see that BSD now is really um, around the world and people are enjoying the show and get the, the information about the BSDs out of us. And that's really why why we do this episode or <laughs> all the others before and the future ones as well. So thank you, Carlos, and we're glad to know about this. All right, then we have Paolo about FreeBSD on a banana pie. Ah, I'm getting hungry, um, <laughs> but this is not <laughs> the thing. Um, that goes like the following. Greetings, Benedict and Alan. Thanks for the great show. You're welcome. I really look forward to it every Thursday when it becomes available on my podcast player. Ah, yes, we try to uh, give you every week a show, so that is... Uh, putting into your, your podcast player every month, uh, every day, every, <laughs> every time you, you look it up, there might be a new episode. So um, here's a question and was hoping we could point him into the right direction. Uh, I was trying to get FreeBSD up and running on a Banana Pi M1 Plus ARM device. Uh, I tried different versions and they all won't finish booting. Hmm. On 12.x, it stops booting after the following message is printed on the screen. Uh, so hit enter to boot immediately or any other key for the command prompt, that is familiar message. Uh, booting boot kernel kernel and using DTB provided by EFI at a certain memory address. The kernel entry is a different address. And then kernel arcs null EHCI failed to shut down host controller. Hmm. At 12, uh, 12.0, 12.1, 12.2, as well as the latest 13 snapshot, and I can't it getting to boot. Uh, I suspect just writing the image using DD is not enough. Maybe some manual DTB file copy is required. At least 13. Uh, 11.3 and 11.0 without luck. Huh. Okay, so one thing I noticed was a change from ARM v6 to v7 from 11.x to 12.x on the image file name, such as below. Not sure if this is relevant or not to the issue I'm seeing. I think mostly it's not, but it might be. It does sound like it might be the version of U-boot that you need 
uh, something different. I'm not sure how different the Banana Pi M1 Plus is from the one that we generate the image for. Yeah, if that is um, in the list, uh, but I think it should be, I've, I've seen, uh, because why wouldn't we offer these images if we didn't know that we, we, uh, we tested them or we tried them out? So we asked if there's an install guide. Right, well, I think we tried it on a Banana Pi, not a Banana Pi M1 Plus, which might be... Ah, new different. revision. Although most of the... Arm stuff is supposed to be relatively generic now. But... Yeah, um, sure. So that's interesting. Why uh, it looks like the person to ask about the banana pie and the QB board is our friend Kyle Evans. Oh, hi. Um, so if anyone uh, of you know about any kind of tweaks or hacks that you need to do to make this thing and dance or boot at least, then uh let us know we will be happy to um follow up on that uh did you check out the freebsd forums i think there's a couple of questions uh there as well in a similar vein in the m2 plus banana pie well because i can see that the banana pie m3 is a completely different cpu architecture it's the a38t as opposed to the a20 oh so that might not be supported yet could be yeah hmm. but even even tried out the um the the stables or not stable the 13 snapshots so maybe there's not something yeah i know at i thought at least it was the banana pie that didn't get an image for 12.2 because something was broken but it appears it was maybe actually one of the other uh devices that ended up not getting an image because something didn't mm. work oh we might want to look on the um freebies the embedded mailing list maybe someone has posted something about that there that is uh, the best place to ask questions about it. Um, the other thing I would suggest possibly to include in your post there is if in the messages you sent, you said you have the hit enter to boot immediately or any key to get to the prompt. If you can get to the prompt and enable the uh, boot verbose option, I think it just by typing boot dash V at that prompt, it might print out a bit more stuff before it hangs and that'll give you a better idea of where it's hanging. The EHCI controller that it failed to shut down there is is the USB controller, so I don't know if that's related or expected or whatever. Mm. But uh, luck would have it that we have a follow-up uh, from Paulo and he seems to have fixed or found the issue or the problem to it. And so he sent us a couple days uh, a little later so that we uh, include it in this episode as a follow-up to this one. Uh, so he ended up finding what the issue was after searching through the FreeBSD R mailing list archives, as we kind of hinted on. So that's a really a good uh, way of getting an embedded device um, running or people who know how to make things work. And he points us to a FreeBSD bug uh, submission. And in there, uh, there was a suggestion like how OpenBSD has a text file with some guidelines on their FTP site. Ah, install RMV7. Okay, so you can use that to make FreeBSD work from OpenBSD instructions. And this way you get the banana pie um, at least to a point where you can boot, it seems. Right, because it sounds like it was actually booting, but you just couldn't see the video output. Ah, so no kernel messages, no further information from the boot. Yeah, basically the, the video driver wasn't attaching. Huh. Ah, now he's he thinks about um, creating a blog about this. It's generally a good idea because people can find it then and either provide their own input or mm -hmm. provide the help that you provide into their own systems. I'm uh, not sure if there's any platform you guys could recommend to use for this purpose. Well, the easiest is probably if you don't want to spend mm. too much time 
uh, f fiddling with, you know, how, how it should look and what kind of template I would use, then just go to Blogspot and start a blog there. That's fairly simple. Yeah, whatever is easiest for you. You know, if you don't want to host something yourself, then there are plenty of services. Yeah, that makes it easy. Just, if you just want to start, you know, ideally you want something that will stay up even when you don't care about it anymore. So that can be an advantage to doing it that way. You know, in the end, you can put it in a, a gist on GitHub if you want. It's, it, you know, as a basically a persistent paste bin. Just anything that will still be there five years from now is probably. Uh, <laughs> yeah, choice. people should be able to find that. Or, I mean, social media is a kind of a bad way to ask for, hey, how does this work? How can you guys make this work? But there's a, plenty of people who are also active there. And maybe uh, this way, in a short format, you can find some information there. So maybe on Twitter or some uh, other social media, there's groups there that also uh, deal with this and have maybe a solution for you. But yeah, I see um, that you're making progress and Maybe you can get it working one day and that might help some other person who's also bought this device and want to make it work with the BSD. So that might be helping someone else. Okay, I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. Uh, thank you for listening as always, wherever you are in the world. Now that we know that we're not just <laughs> in certain countries, we're everywhere. And yeah, thank you for listening and stay tuned for our episode next week. Mm -hmm.